Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 88 of UAB Green and Told, original debut Monday, January 2nd, 2023. Through our podcast, we are given the chance to share stories from members of the UAB community. Want to listen to past episodes of Green and Told? Check us out at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold on Spotify or the Apple Podcast app. And while there, we'd love for you to leave a written review so more alums can find us. I'm Greg Barry, a UAB alum and director of communications in the Office of Alumni Affairs. For many of us, we can tell when a product needs improving, but may not know exactly what or how to do it. That's not the case for today's guest. No, when a problem pops into Forrest Satterfield's mind, he's already processing ways that product can be improved. While the end result may not immediately be known, as Forrest will share, he knows he'll be able to get there. From a kid of like, I may not know how to do it yet, but I will know how to do it, and I'm fairly certain I can do it better. So there definitely was a, a, a cockiness to it. And as a college student, Forrest was already working on ways to improve products. Even with a full class load with endless study sessions, he was working hard to ensure he found success. Just working until, you know, from sun up to, to sundown, uh, just working on this idea and kind of going through it and uh, uh, refining and refining and refining it. Plus hear about his latest venture, one that's working with things that could easily be struggles you and I could be dealing with at any moment. We looked at and saw with the medical bills is that about 80% of medical bills have errors. Hailing from Rocket City, USA, it's not surprising that at one point, Forrest Satterfield wanted to be an astronaut, taking flight and traveling into outer space. But his career trajectory turned away from moon rocks and stars and turned towards technology to help us Earthlings. Before we discover how Satterfield Technologies and Barabill got started, we need to know more about Forrest himself. So I grew up in a very heavy aerospace engineering, defense industry kind of family. and. Uh, from a young age, I knew I wanted to be um, an engineer, involved in engineering. I would say probably the first thing I wanted to be was uh, an OBGYN because I was told I was great with kids and I didn't know what an OBGYN was. It was just that it was a doctor that dealt with kids was, my, was the way I was uh, told. Uh, then it was uh, astronaut and I wanted to be an astronaut uh, up until I uh, decided to shadow a prosthetics clinic uh, in high school. And what I noticed was uh, all of my ideas in aerospace engineering uh, had already been done, but none of the stuff that I was thinking about from a biomedical standpoint was. And Huntsville was a very tech heavy city. I remember, um, so for example, uh, the James Webb telescope that was uh, manufactured partially here. And my dad was involved in that. And so there was a time in, uh, I want to say, high school when I was walking underneath the James Webb telescope in a full clean suit, just kind of taking it all in. And the big thing was, uh, and not to gloss over my childhood, but kind of get back to that prosthetics clinic, I knew how much stuff cost from like a defense or an aerospace side and kind of like, you know, how much technology in general costs. When I was shadowing the prosthetic clinic, there was a guy working there uh, who had a prosthetic leg. And this kind of gives you an idea of what I was like, especially as a kid. I looked over at him and I said, how much does that leg cost? And he said, $30,000. And I said, well, shoot, I could do that for $15,000 uh, and, you know, make a, a huge difference in this, this guy's life. 
And that's kind of what got me started from, from there. Early on, you kind of had that entrepreneurial mindset in your head. Um, was there other... Because oh, yeah, I was told if I wanted to build the stuff I wanted to work on, I had to start my own company. If I work for somebody else, I have to build their stuff. But if I work for myself, I can build the stuff I want to build. So that obviously appealed to you. So did you take that conversation that you had with that gentleman um, with his leg and kind of start thinking about what can I do to lay the foundation for a future business? Immediately, because I had I had seen Iron Man. Uh, so I was already thinking about exoskeletons and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, OK, this is how we could do this. And this is how we could do that. But also it's just, you know, what was shocking to me was the fact that the leg that he was using wasn't motorized or anything like that. It wasn't particularly an advanced piece of tech. And I was like, well, we can do so much. I, you know, there, there's always uh, a bit of ego in every engineer of like, I can do that better. And that was something that was always in me, even like from a kid of like, I may not know how to do it yet, but I will know how to do it. And I'm fairly certain I can do it better. So there definitely was a, a, a cockiness to it. Uh, but it's also, there's a lot of precedent because of course, by the time I would get to the point to where I could actually make something or be involved in that, the technology would have progressed significantly. So it was, it, it was, it was an inevitable kind of a, a, a cockiness, I guess, of like, I know by the time I get there, uh, we'll be able to make it better, which, you know, of course. So what kind of steps did you take before you came to UAB to kind of start the groundwork for what would become Satterfield Technologies or did anything shape around that time? Oh, I was trying to start businesses since I was like middle school. And the hard thing is, is raising funding when you're in middle school. I got to tell you, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was definitely my, my parents were, were, super, were supportive. Uh, they, they wanted uh, me to kind of pursue that. But at the same time, I had to have a pretty airtight business uh, model uh, in order to, to get uh, funding in that situation. And that was something that I was lazy to do. So what I would do is I'd try and get a business off the ground with no funding. So the first thing I did was um, I started making skim boards because uh, I was into that. So I'd buy a piece of wood, uh, watch a YouTube video on how to turn that into a skim board. And, and so we made that and I was like, okay, now what? And we didn't really get much past that. And then I was playing lacrosse in high school and I noticed that there were wooden lacrosse sticks. So I reached out to all the wooden lacrosse stick manufacturers, set up a website and had a central website for buying any kind of wooden lacrosse stick across the country. And I was like, all right, we're good. I've got samples. And then I went to college. Uh, and so that kind of fell by uh, the wayside because I didn't have the time to go up to Huntsville and sell wooden lacrosse sticks and then back down to Birmingham. And I didn't make the connection that there were there was a demand in Birmingham that I could be selling to there. So it was definitely, I was always a lot more farther along on the engineering side of like actually getting product or, or getting something like that done uh, rather than the, the business side. That one developed a lot later. You grew up in Huntsville. You're close to Nashville, Knoxville, Chattanooga, Huntsville, obviously, Birmingham. Why UAB? It was a, a place, only a university that offered biomedical engineering, which is what I wanted to go uh, into in, in the state. And also I saw a lot of potential in Birmingham, uh, especially at that time. I would drive around downtown and you'd see these big historic buildings that were like abandoned 
And I was like, we could get that for a good deal. Uh, and then my office will go here and then, the, you know, we'll build manufacturing there. And so I saw, you know, all this potential in the city and that really excited me more than any other. I mean, you look at uh, uh, Stanford or Harvard or you, you look at any other kind of like big universities and you look around and he's like, well, where do I grow? You know, it was always, you know, everything costs so much money. And I was like, well, what we can do is we can bootstrap here in Birmingham. We can get it off the ground. Uh, and then, you know, as we grow, it's not at the uh, uh, loss of other people. You know, my success is not at someone else's failure as it might be in like a Silicon Valley or something like that, where everything is so highly competitive, hiring people, getting office space, everything else like that. And I, I just wanted to, I wanted to be successful without it being hurting or, or, or you know, at the, the detriment of other people. You got involved by kind of jumping in head first and starting businesses. And let's talk a little bit about Satterfield Technologies. You started that your sophomore year and it became the first student startup at Innovation Depot. I'm guessing that stemmed from that question you had with the gentleman with the leg years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So when I came to UAB, it was, I hit the ground running. So uh, I w went over to, it was EITD. It was the Center for Biophysical Sciences and Engineering at the time. I went over there and I said, I don't know what I'm doing, but I want to build this. I, uh, uh, I want to build prosthetics that are uh, affordable for people. And the uh, uh, people there, we had uh, Dr. Lee Marotti, who I believe has retired now, and Samuel Misto and Dr. David Brown, who's uh, at another university now. And they would sit down with me every week and they would listen to this kid who doesn't know what he's doing. And I'd be like, this is what I'm thinking. And then they'd say, well, you're going to have to do this, 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 and this. And I'd say, all right, I'll go do that. And then I'd come back the next week. And I'd be like, this is the progress I made. Uh, uh, okay, you need to do this, this, and this. And I mean, they were incredibly patient, incredibly helpful, uh, because it's what allowed me and helped me develop my idea to the point to where uh, I got into CGIU. So I, I was also, you know, and that's what I built off of from that into, I mean, I believe that's what got me into the Innovation Depot was the fact that I had already made all this progress uh, up to that point in terms of developing out the idea and the product and everything like that. So th this was just about 10 years ago when you joined the Innovation Lab at Innovation Depot. What was the experience like? How many people were there? And here you are, the only student at the time. Yeah, so it would fluctuate from day to day uh, because it's not like there weren't other students that were uh, getting into the space and using the space. At the time, so I'd gotten my first 3D printer. Unfortunately, the, the way that I had, uh, my grandfather passed away and he left me about $2,500, uh, which was just enough money to get the 3D printer that we needed. And so it was this very kind of serious moment of like, okay, well, this is last thing he left me and now I'm, I'm going to put this into pursuing this business. And so I had my 3D printer and I was uh, going through prototypes. Basically, I would 3D, I started with a foot ankle brace uh, because that was the, uh, that's one of the devices that's in high demand. So instead of starting off with prosthetics, I started with orthotics because uh, there was a lot more people that could help with the idea that we would go back around into prosthetics uh, with what we've learned from orthotics. 
So I was working in the lab and I would 3D print out these different prototypes and I'd put them into my shoe and I'd walk around in them and I'd be like, all right, this is comfortable. This is not comfortable. And I just kind of had this corner uh, of the, the lab space where I had these two giant whiteboards that were already there. Uh, and I'd fill them up with calculations or, or, or flows of like the, the, the user interface of how it would work or the business model or just like research and information that I had found. Uh, different sources that I would go to. And that's how I'd spend most of my, I mean, I, I spent, I would say 90% of my weekends in that space, just working until, you know, from sun up to, to sundown, uh, just working on this idea and kind of going through it and uh, uh, refining and refining and refining it. How has the business trajectory been over the last few years? Here we are 2022 with the debut in 2019 of that first brace, where have you gone to? Well, we were contacted by the, the state uh, Alabama uh, Prosthetics and Orthotics Organization and said you're acting as an orthotist. We disagree with, we, we believe that we are a device manufacturer. We're not an orthotist, but uh, based off how the law is written, uh, we are. So we had to pause that. So we're currently in a, a holding pattern uh, in that realm, which is frustrating because it felt like the people that we were building this for to help, uh, which was not just for the patients, but to make it easier for the prosthetists and the orthotists, that was frustrating. We're, we're still trying to figure out how to best move forward there. Uh, but it didn't really matter because at the same time that happened uh, was when the pandemic happened. We decided to see if we could make N95 face masks. The way that N95 face masks are normally made is you have um, hot, Plastic gets shoots shoot through a die uh, up against the wall, and that's how the the fiber and everything is made. And those machines are millions of dollars. So suddenly there was no N95 mask available. Uh, was there a way for us to make that material without you know purchasing a multi-million dollar machine? And it turns out you can using electro spinning. Turns out there was a manufacturer up in Tennessee. So what we did is we reached out to them and had these circular filters made. N95 tested, proven. Uh, in fact, we had UAB ER doctors using our face mask. But then what we did is, so we used less material and then we would 3D scan your face with an iPhone and then 3D print a custom fit face mask. And so using what we learned from manufacturing the 3D printed knee braces, we just readjusted our manufacturing uh, setup and we started making face masks. And that blew up uh, literally overnight. So we got over a hundred orders in a night uh, and then I had spent the next year and a half uh, working on that to absolute burnout, uh, uh, more burnt out than I was already burnt out going into it. I was crispy at that point. There was uh, uh, not much left. So I had to take a break and I decided to come back up and spend some time with my parents who I hadn't seen in a year and a half because of the pandemic. And, and at that point, I decided to apply to Generator, which was a business uh accelerator and i started a uh, bear built through that talk a bit about bear built because this is kind of a shift a little bit because this isn't a necessarily a product but a way to help people basically in the insurance industry yeah this is my first uh, I, I prefer hardware and product development uh, software is uh, definitely easier in a, in a lot of ways i know i'm saying that uh, the people who are involved in software development i'm sure very uh, much disagree there are definitely pros and cons to it, but this was the first one where I said, all right, so 
uh, they uh, generator invest a hundred thousand dollars. And I said, all right, well, what do you want me to do with it? And they said, you start a business and it has to be related to healthcare and it has to be software. And so at the time, what I was wanting to do was to get into hospitals because we had such huge burnout for people. And I wanted to work on something to improve essentially the logistics of a hospital, but we couldn't get into a hospital because of the pandemic stage at that time. And so I said, oh, all right, well, we can't build a product without talking to users. Uh, so what users related to healthcare can we talk to? And there was a lot of people at the time who were giving birth that happened to be a, a part of Generator uh, having kids. And so we talked to them and we saw their bills. And I knew that medical billing was a problem all the way back to 2013, because that was one of the big things that was talked about with the prosthetics and the orthotics was, how are you going to get reimbursed? Insurance and it's all, it's a nightmare. And all, you know, I've always heard horror stories when it comes to uh, making medical products, because it was always about like, but how are you going to get paid? And how are you going to do this? So there was something that I was already uh, familiar with. And what we looked at and saw with the medical bills is that about 80% of medical bills have errors. Uh, and that's based off of statistics uh, provided uh, outside of bear bills. So th those were statistics we found outside of them. And we said, all right, so 80% contain errors. Uh, let's see if we can find any errors on the ones that um, the people we know have. And we did. And then we said, all right, can we automate the detection of these errors? And that was really the big innovation was uh, medical bill auditing has been around for a while now, uh, but it's always been a human process. It's always been a human involved in, in reviewing everything. And our uh, big innovation or our big change is that we automatically can go through uh, a bill. You take a picture of a bill and we automatically pull that information and then we check it against our system's information. And then we're able to determine whether or not there's an error uh, there and report that back. When it comes to bearer bill, where do you see it growing and how has it grown so far since September? So you've got four big entities in, in our healthcare uh, institution, which is you have patients, you have employers, you have healthcare providers, and you have insurance. And these four groups fundamentally lack trust between all of them. Uh, and you see that a lot in terms of like people posting online about, you know, what does this bill mean? I don't understand. Uh, you know, they think they've already paid for something. Uh, they're getting duplicate bills, stuff like that. Uh, for employers, it's okay, well, we have a third-party administrator managing our, our, our negotiated prices and facilitating our plan, uh, but we've actually gone in and looked at those negotiated prices and they're much worse. In fact, uh, there are a lot of situations where, uh, or that we're finding right now, where the negotiated prices are more expensive than if you had no insurance whatsoever. Uh, then for the healthcare providers, it's talking to insurance and saying, okay, we've done this procedure, getting properly reimbursed. Uh, and then for insurance, it's saying, okay, but how do we know that so-and-so said, you know, so-and-so said that they received care. Um, and if they want to check to make sure that that's true, that's a human audit that they have to go through. And it's this whole big long process. So I see Bear Bill is really acting as a, a, a trusted entity between all of these groups. And so what's gonna be really important is that we don't position ourselves as being the representative of any one group we are uh, simply checking uh, the data and making sure that it's accurate uh, and we're not choosing teams. In a lot of ways, acting as a, as a referee, uh, saying, you know, that uh, an apple's an apple, an orange is an orange, 
and and moving forward the conversation that way. And so what that does, al although it seems relatively simple on its face, is dramatically speed up uh, payments, uh, people getting reimbursed, people getting stuff paid, and it also reduces a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of uh, uh, confusion, especially on uh, the provider, patient, employer side of like what's going on. Uh, not to say that insurance uh, doesn't have uh, different things that we can help them with, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, right now what we're seeing a lot of demand from is from the provider side for generating the bill in the first place and then making sure that they're getting properly reimbursed for uh, insurance providers. And then from a patient slash employer side of, okay, making sure that they have coverage in the first place, how much are they going to pay? Uh, uh, where do you go to get the best negotiated rate given your plan? So that's like a real uh, big one that we've seen, which is depending on the plan that you have. And uh, right now you have no way of knowing this, but depending on the plan that you have, if you go to one hospital, you get, you know, let's say it's a hundred dollars. You go down to the hospital down the street, it's $10,000. Mm -hmm. You would have no way of knowing that. that and that doesn't have any errors. That doesn't have any kind of issues. Uh, we can prevent that from happening in the first place and say, okay, given what kind of care that you need, this is where you should go given your plan. Or given the kind of care that you need, this is the kind of plan that you should get when that comes around. Doubling back a little bit, your entrepreneurial spirit kind of led you to found the UAB Makerspace during your junior year on campus. Why did you feel there was a need to have Makerspace and how has it kind of developed over time? Yeah, so that was through, uh, I became a university innovation fellow, uh, which was fantastic experience that got me into design thinking uh, that got, which is like the fundamental, like that's the foundation of, of my company today or any company that I'm involved with is this design thinking, talking to the, the people, understanding what the problem is uh, before moving forward. Uh, which in healthcare, that is a, a complicated task. That's a lot of interviews and talking to different people just because of how uh, intricate the system can be. A lot of times you see a problem uh, and it turns out the, it's a completely different, it's a symptom of something completely different. So the makerspace was uh, my uh, UIF project. So as a university innovation fellow, uh, our purpose was to increase innovation and entrepreneurship on campus. And so I posed the question uh, to our, our faculty sponsors. I said, uh, how would you like us to do that? Uh, because that's, that's a pretty, uh, you know, how do you define innovation? How do you define entrepreneurship? How would we measure our success? And we eventually did uh, come up with those uh, metrics, but they suggested uh, makerspace. So I, uh, this is a situation where I, I pretty much focused um, uh, most of my time, if not all of it, uh, away from my company and temporarily on the makerspace because I saw it as this great. Um, so if I'm going to build a company, I need people. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we have people who are trained in these different uh, uh, mindsets and tools and have experience in uh, these innovative and entrepreneurial en endeavors in college, then by the time they leave and they're ready for me to hire uh, and I can bring them on. So I was thinking about this from a pipeline perspective. So uh, we uh, got the makerspace started uh, in the library, the UAB library. Uh, we uh, went in there, got that space. Uh, dean Alexander, he was uh, Dean Ewan Alexander uh, at the time, uh, he helped us get uh, a wall put in. So before that, it was all completely open. So, you know, the first version of the makerspace was five 3D printers chained to a wall 
and I would have to, uh, uh, I spent most of my time in that space in the library, just kind of like watching and making sure that they're fine as they're printing. Because when I left, uh, if we didn't have a volunteer in there or anything like that, um, those like somebody could just walk up to the 3D printer and just start messing around with it. Now that never happened because we have great students that go to UAB and they're a fantastic uh, student population. Um, but we eventually got the wall in, we got involved in uh, the way that I saw the makerspace growing or any makerspace is that uh, makerspace is a reflection of uh, the surrounding environment. So like a makerspace out in rural Alabama would look very different than something in uh, uh, the middle of the city of Birmingham because the makerspaces are supposed to be addressing problems within those communities. So we got involved in a lot of different uh, projects. So we got involved in uh, Baja uh, racing. We got involved in the um, uh, UAB uh, solar house uh, uh, that went out to Colorado. We, we were involved in uh, Barber Motorsports. We went out there and we actually were getting feedback from them on our pitch for Baja uh, racing. And I was like, hey, uh, could we do some 360 videos or some VR stuff out here? And they paid for the cameras and we, we went out and did that. And so it was a lot of trying to uh, establish these relationships with these different groups the idea behind the makerspace was you were using the makerspace through these different projects, through partnering with different organizations in the community. And that was how students would be able to get involved. And so they had these real world examples of like, okay, here are the mindsets and tools we're wanting you to use. And here's how, and you're applying them experientially. When it comes to the relationship with UAB, how has that kind of fostered a sense of success or helped in your success in your young professional career? The people of UAB, um, uh, faculty, uh, the staff, people who work there have been fantastically uh, supportive. Everything that I did at UAB was uh, in most cases the first time. So I, first with CGIU, with University Innovation Fellows, with getting into Innovation Depot. And so you're always at the, the mercy of, of others, you know, when, when you're at the first, because there, there's no precedent. There's, you know, how are we going to do this? Uh, and so it's a lot of uh, flying by the seat of your pants. Uh, and I always enjoyed uh, working uh, with the different faculty and staff here at UAB because they were willing to give me the time uh, uh, and, and, and work with me to, to develop these projects. Not to say that, uh, you know, everything that a student accomplishes at UAB is definitely their own. And, you know, they're not going to hold your hand. Uh, but at the same time, I don't see how I would have been able to do all the things that I did at another university, uh, not even close. Uh, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to have gone to UAB and I'm actually a little bit jealous uh, now with the new entrepreneurship program uh, at UAB and you know, there's, there's, there's so much that I was able to be involved with, but I, I continue to look at the campus and I see like, oh, I, I want to, you know, maybe I could go back. Maybe there's another uh, major I could do. Uh, or, or something to, to really take advantage of all the new stuff that they have uh, offering. It's incredibly exciting to see uh, what's going there. And I think if they continue to invest in the innovation and entrepreneurship uh, geared uh, educational learning and these opportunities to, to build out, I, I'm, it's absolutely uh, thrilling.
That's Forrest Satterfield. Forrest earned his BS in biomedical engineering in 2018 from the UAB School of Engineering. Today, he's CEO of Satterfield Technologies and Chief Technology Officer at Barabill. As one of the first UAB students accepted into the Clinton Global Initiative University, Forrest has his own idea of what it means to be a blazer. To be a blazer for me meant I worked my ass off 90% of the time and then 10% of the time I always had friends I could go back to and we could go party and have fun. Uh, and, and I always felt like there was people who wanted to be involved, who wanted to be a part of, uh, of what I was doing or, or what I was building. And to have that kind of su support and acceptance, absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and, and, and has been hugely impactful uh, in, in my own success and future. So it, it, I never felt alone at UAB. I'd like to invite you to listen into previous episodes of UAB Green and Told. Check us out at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold. Have a story to share or know someone we should reach out to? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on social media. Search UAB Alumni on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go Blazers. <laughs>